Hello, and welcome back to the Baseball Trade Values Podcast. My name is Joshua Iverson, and I am the associate editor of BaseballTradeValues.com, joined, as always, by founder and owner John Bitzer. John, Happy New Year. It's it's 2023. Great things ahead of us. How you doing? Doing fine, Josh. Happy New Year to you, too. It's been unseasonably warm in New Jersey, like weirdly so. So I'm expecting the winter weather to hit soon. Um, but I'm also enthused that stuff is happening again on the hot stove after kind of a lull over the holidays, So, which we will get into, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm absolutely interested in what's going on the next couple months between now and spring training. Um, I, I feel like I hit the lottery uh, over the holidays, I made it back to California and back here to Arizona on two Southwest flights with only like a couple hours of delays between the two of them. I really Whoa. lucked out there. I have all my luggage on me. It's whoa! Did I used all my the... good luck for the year already. And did you miss the floods and the bomb cyclone or whatever too? Oh, there was <laughs> not quite flooding, but wow, it was pouring in California while I was there. And then I I get back into Phoenix and it's pouring and lightning and everything that night too. So. I guess okay. you, you win some, you lose some, right? There you go. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I hope all of our listeners had a, a great holiday season as well. And, and now we're back to talk more baseball. Uh, plenty to talk about, somewhat surprisingly. I mean, it's it's been an extra week between our last episode and this one. Uh, but some pretty significant trades, a couple extensions, not, not quite as much free agent activity just because uh, kind of running out of the big names there. Uh, but we have plenty to talk about. Is there anything you want to bring up before we get into these first trades? Uh, no, just, um, we're in a new year. Um, our model is going to show that, uh, pretty soon that everyone got a year older because we go by like eight season age or whatever that's called. So whatever their real birthday is, if they were 26 and 22, then according to fan graphs and others, they'll be 27 in 2023. So we're making all those changes. That's a small point I know, but my larger point is we can now kind of we've kind of turned the corner on the calendar. And so now we're sort of looking ahead to the year and thinking in 2023 terms. Yeah. Great point. And we're also continuing to get more and more information from prospect sources and, and all that good stuff. So still going to see plenty of changes on the site as, uh, right. as we inch closer and closer to the start of the season. Yeah. And yeah, you're right about that. And also just wanted to, you know, we, you know, we've done a little bit of tweaking just for market calibration reasons. You know, we've talked about it earlier that, you know, we definitely saw a spike in terms of the, um, kind of the, the metric of dollars per war. So that kind of lifted all the rising tide lifted all the boats. Um, so we've made most of those changes on the site. I say most because we've had to kind of double and triple check to make sure everybody sort of makes them, you know, it, it, it falls in line. So uh, but I think we're there now. Sweet. With that, let's get into the biggest trade from this little holiday gap here. This was just a couple days before Christmas. The Blue Jays acquired outfielder Dalton Varsho, 74.5 million median trade value, from the Arizona Diamondbacks in exchange for catching prospect Gabriel Moreno at 57.3, and outfielder Lourdes Gurriel Jr. at 5.6. Uh, I, I did just say catching prospect Gabriel Moreno. Technically, he's graduated uh, by our model and uh, by, I, I think, by the you know actual definition of, of all these prospect outlets graduating from the list. Uh, technically, he has, but he still just has tiny little cup of coffee at the big league level. So he's essentially a prospect, has all six years of team control. Um, really, really fun trade, really fascinating here. <laughs> Varsho had an amazing 2022 season. He's a really fun player, short, fast, was a catcher, uh, still catches sometimes. Now he's an elite defensive outfielder. 
has some power. Really fun, interesting player. Uh, he comes with four years of team control, and he's kind of exactly what the Blue Jays needed. They've put together a really strong defensive outfield. They signed Kevin Kiermeyer to play center, uh, traded away Gurriel in this deal, and Teoscar Hernandez to the Mariners earlier in the offseason. They're bumping George Springer to a corner outfielder spot. Uh, he's been a center fielder his whole career, so that he'd, he'd likely be a plus in a corner. And then you get uh, you get Varsho here, who he was fantastic in the outfield last year at both positions, center field and right field. And so you figure he's going to have to cover for Kiermaier in center at least a little bit, given that Kiermaier doesn't doesn't play full seasons. We know that. Um, so he's he's just a really good fit for them, a good left-handed bat, and. The Moreno, alternatively, is a, is a great fit for the D-backs, who didn't really have a long-term answer at catcher, since they clearly weren't too interested in playing Varsho there full-time. He's he's not really a regular catcher uh, at this point in his career. And the, the Blue Jays had plenty to move from at catcher. They had Alejandro Kirk, Danny Jansen, and Moreno, and, and they're going into the season now with the two older, more experienced players in Kirk and uh, and Jansen there. So there's a bit of a bit of a value gap here, but it was accepted by our model, just minor overpay by the D-backs. Um, th there's a lot to get into here, a lot for each of these three guys. Uh, I guess we'll just start, John. What was your gut reaction to this deal when it came through? And then now that we've been sitting with it for a couple weeks, what are you thinking? So <clears throat> this is one that's that felt really fair. And, um, and I still think it's fair. Um, and I will make one point on the valuations. This was before we had done that, that, um, market calibration comp um, and don't want to take any credit, but after the market valid market calibration, it, it's going to look uh, fairly close. Actually, it would have been in a fair territory. So it's sort of like, oh, shoot, we should have done this before that trade happened. But nonetheless, I don't take credit for it. It's fair enough, I guess, is what from that standpoint. Um, and I do like it for, you know, one other thing is it's really when you get into guys with multiple years of control and it kind of spans the numbers get big, you know, on a percentage basis, it's fine. You know what I mean? So um, because you sort of get wider error bars uh, with all those multiple years kind of combined. Um, so I think that's also why it feels fair. Um, and from a strategic standpoint, I love it. I think uh, the Blue Jays are making a really smart calculation. And, you know, they're, they're, you know, they've got some chops in that front office. They know that Varsho is just kind of hitting his prime and probably has another gear left. And they got four years of control of him. So it's a really smart move. They had a surplus of catchers, as we know. And so I wasn't um, expecting them to move Moreno. I think the consensus in the industry was they were going to move uh, Jansen. So that part was a little bit surprised. I, wouldn't, I also didn't expect them to move Gurriel, but he's only got one year of control left. So you can see in their moves that they're getting rid of guys with one year's con uh, control. They want multiple years of control, whether it's Varsha, whether it's Swanson, who they got in the uh, Teoscar deal. So I think it makes sense. It's interesting from that point of view that they're thinking not just for this year, but you know, a few years ahead. That kind of aligned with the years of control remaining in their core, like Laddie and, and Bo and those guys. So, uh, so I think it makes sense from that standpoint. And I love it from the D-back standpoint as well, because you know Carson Kelly was was kind of fallen off as a as a catcher, you know. And and I think they're thinking ahead. So they've got six years of control of Moreno, one of the former top prospects in the game. So uh, it's an immediate boost there. And they had a surplus of outfielders. And I still think I have a funny feeling they're going to flip Gurriel at the deadline, if not sooner, because uh, they don't. It doesn't really fit their timeline. Um, so I think they'll get something back from him as well. Um, so I just think it's one of those that makes sense from every angle. Yeah, I completely agree there. Um, 
as far as the D-back side of it, I, I mentioned the the, the glutted catcher that the Blue Jays had, but uh, the D-backs had even more going on as far as left-handed hitting outfielders. Uh, they had Varsho, Jake McCarthy really turned it on in the second half last year. Alec Thomas, former top, top prospect, didn't have the best 2022, but he's still a big part of their plans. And Corbin Carroll, who's one of the best prospects in baseball, and he really uh, showed some flashes of, of he, could, he could be really special. And he showed that a little bit near the end of 2022. And so that's four left-handed hitting outfielders who all deserve a lot of, of at-bats, a lot of plate appearances, and obviously not room for all of them. So that was part of why earlier in the offseason we saw the D-backs trade for Kyle Lewis. He can be a right-handed hitting complement to those guys. Uh, but they, that was still just too much going on in the outfield. And that makes the Gurriel addition a bit odd, as you said. I, I could see them definitely flipping him this offseason if they find a good taker and, and they can add a bat somewhere else, uh, particularly on the infield or, or maybe an arm or something like that. But uh, he he does feel like a weird fit for them. I, I don't think he'll be there too long. But yeah, I, I, I really like this for them. I'm out here in Phoenix, so I got plenty of friends that are D-backs fans and uh one of my one of my best buds he was texting me about this trade right after it went through and, and what he said basically was you know Varsho was my favorite player but I, I feel kind of good about this like this <laughs> I like it they're, they're excited yeah. about Gabriel Moreno here and there's good reason to be excited about him he's got the potential to be a real all-around impact catcher and those don't grow on trees exactly and when you look at the future for the Diamondbacks you've got Corbin Carroll you've got Thomas you've got McCarthy you've got Moreno now and you've got a really strong farm of more guys coming you know there's a there's a lot of reason for hope here there's blue sky here in Arizona and there's they're they're kind of sneaky the D-backs you know they'll sign a Zach Greinke they'll sign a Madison Bumgarner they were in on Dansby Swanson try to try to get him back and and fix their mistake that they made in sending him away. Um, they could make some noise here. Obviously they've kind of, kind of missed the boat on that. This free agency, they tried for Swanson, didn't get him. And now the market's pretty barren. And I don't think anybody has delusions of them contending in 2023. Maybe they luck into it, luck into a wild card spot, but I don't think anybody's picking them as a, as a playoff contender this year quite yet, but they're setting up a core. Like you say, there's a lot of good guys that are just entering their primes, just getting into the big league level, getting their feet wet. And uh, yeah, this could be a big year of growth for them. And then maybe next off season, they make a splash. Let the kids play, see how they do develop one more year. And then, yeah, like you said, 2024, they're going to probably get more serious in free agent marketing and go from there. Yeah. It's, it's a fun time out here. All right, uh, next big trade. Uh, it, it takes a bit of a dip from there. <laughs> this one was actually from today. We're recording this on Saturday, January 7th. Um, and the Phillies acquired Gregory Soto from the Tigers. So pulling up the values there. Uh, we had Gregory Soto, left-handed reliever, at $2.1 million in median trade value. Uh, they also acquired infielder Cody Clemens at $1.5 million. In exchange, they sent the Tigers infielder Nick Maton, $8.0 million. Outfielder Matt Veerling, 7.2 million, and catcher Donnie Sands at 1.6 million. So, pretty significant gap there, and uh, the deal was rejected in our model as an uh, by our model as an overpay by the Phillies. Uh, there's a lot to unpack here. You know, five players. It's really the Phillies dumping all of their depth <laughs> onto the Tigers and turning it into, you know, they get a slightly worse utility infielder back in Clemens, uh, downgrade from Maton to Clemens, and they add another wild hard-throwing left-handed reliever they 
had some luck with Jose Alvarado, kind of turning him around, and now they're going to try and do the same with Gregory Soto. Uh, so you and I were just talking about this deal a little bit before the podcast, but uh, I'll let you share what you're thinking about this one and why we might have missed on it. Yeah, so there is a lot to him back here. Let's start with Soto, who's totally agree he's the most talented player in this deal, right? But, you know, so... So the good news is he's a hard-throwing lefty, you know, with great stuff. The bad news is he's never been able to control it. If you look at his fan grabs page, four years of data of walk rates way over five per nine. If you look at his stat cast page, it's all over the place. There's some there's some red, but there's some blue. And so it's a mixed set. <clears throat> his WPA was negative, as it has been a couple times. And so he's basically a project, which is weird because he's almost 30 and he's got four years, but he's never put it together as a complete whole. He's never put it together as, as what you would think looking at his stuff. So the Phillies are gambling that they can turn him into, you know, the next, uh, big fix him like they did over Alvarado. Alvarado is a similar profile, throws hard, but you know, all over the place. And Alvarado, by the way, even though he had a good regular season, he had some real trouble in the postseason, if you remember. Um, so even he, um, will melt down sometimes. So they got another guy who's very, very high risk, high reward. <clears throat> so that said, um, you know, when you look at our model is based on, you know, reasonable expectations of what to expect going forward based on inputs like war, like WPA, like some stuff. Um, but relievers are also the most volatile, as we know. And so, you know, it's a, when you look at the scatter plot, it's quite all over the place. So we're trying to uh, make some sense of the madness. Um, what we do know is that teams seem to be targeting guys with better stuff. And so we're always looking to improve our model in, in terms of reliever relievers. And one thing we might look at based on this and a couple other data points that we saw in free agency, some guys getting paid more than we expected, kind of raised our eyebrows a little bit. And we thought, okay, um, what is it that they're seeing that maybe is not showing up in the stats? And so we're looking for that thing. It could be fastball velocity. It could be something else like that. Um, but we're going to still look at that. We know we have a little bit more work to do on the reliever side. Um, okay, so there's that. <clears throat> so we're probably too low in Soto if we look at all those things. Um, and then on the package that Detroit got, um, Scott Harris, their top executive, said, oh, this one was, quote, unquote, over the line for us. In other words, he thinks it was an overpay for by Philly. And by the way, Philly does have a history of overpaying. They spent $12 million on Brad Hand and and uh, Juris Familia last year and got basically nothing combined between the two of them. Familia had to be DFA'd. That, those, both of those deals looked bad at the time for us, and we were proven right. You know, They've been scrambling to put a bullpen together for a while now. Dombrowski has a history of overpaying for players in general. He doesn't care because it's not his money and because he wants a World Series win. So that makes perfect sense. They're going to overpay. So over there in Detroit, Scott Harris, the new guy, says, hey, okay, you're going to overpay? Sure. And so I think he made a good deal here, um, given Soto's issues. Um, now, a lot of people will gut react and say, well, Philly just traded bench players, right? And I don't disagree. They are bench players. But they also have some positive signs. Harris said, you know, both Matan and Veerling control the strike zone really well. You might recall when he first took the job, he had a press conference and he said, I'm looking for guys who control the strike zone because everything flows from there. And he's targeting guys who can do that. And I think that's really smart. And so these guys basically 
you might think at first glance, oh, you know, they're bench players, whatever. But if you kind of dig in a little bit, um, both Veerling and Meitong hit opposite side, uh, pitching really well. Um, they both have high on base percentages. They both take good are professional bats. They both have five years of control. They're not going to be stars, but they're going to be productive at a low cost, which is why our model says, yeah, they're worth more. So that's what the Tigers got. Um, it's probably a what we've sort of figured it'll wash between uh, Clemens and Sands, so that's that's fine. But it's really between Soto and those two guys. So we're probably a little low on Soto uh, after we make some tweaks to the reliever model. But I think you know maybe Maton's a little bit of a stretch, but but a Beerling is definitely right on the money. I think in terms of value, so it is an overpay. I think by Philly, given their history, given what Harris said, and given what we've seen in general. This is just a really weird trade, and <laughs> I I really thought that both sides like from from the minute the names got reported like you know they, they say soto to philly and it's like okay I'm, I'm, i guess i'm kind of on board here but as soon as everything came out it's like what because start from detroit side of things obviously you know we talked extensively about how they're in kind of a weird gray area right now they don't really have enough talent to be too optimistic about contending in the next year or two but they have too much young talent and not enough to trade away to be diving into another rebuild or anything and so they're in this kind of rock in a hard place type and in this deal they add realistically three bench players <laughs> and i mean they, they're going to play more regularly for the tigers but on a good team all three of these guys are bench players and i i like veerling i i think he can hit lefties pretty well he's fast he's got a little power he can play all three outfield spots i think he's a useful player to have on a team he can be a solid platoon player for you. And I think Maton's interesting enough. And, and even Sands. Sands, he, he's very clearly like one, arguably the smallest player in this deal, the, the least valuable, um, close to the least valuable, at least by our model. Um, but he's hit pretty well at the high minors as a catcher. And, and so those are three decent major league players, don't get me wrong, but why wouldn't Detroit be gambling a little bit more here, you know? It seems like a weird approach for them to go after these depth type guys versus grabbing some low miners lottery tickets because it might be another couple years before they're contending anyway. So that that confused me from Detroit side of things. And for the Phillies, like you said, yeah, they're they're trading away a bunch of depth here and, and none of these guys were going to be playing every day for them, but they sure could have been. <laughs> I mean we saw last year what happened with Bryce Harper. He's going to start this, the season on the injured list as he recovers from Tommy John, and I don't know what his timeline is looking like. I haven't seen an update there since he underwent Tommy John in November, but it's, he's going to miss at least a good chunk of the season, you would figure. And so anybody goes down in that outfield, and you're once again, well, I mean, you're already looking at both Nick Castellanos and Kyle Schwarber playing outfield spots on, a, on an everyday basis, and that's less than ideal. But anyone goes down out there, and now Dalton Guthrie is playing every day, and Simone Muziati is coming up from the minor leagues, or Jake Cave, who they got on a minor league deal the, this offseason. It's, I, yeah. <laughs> or I guess they got Cave off waivers, excuse me. But that outfield depth is real thin, and Veerling was going to play an important role for that team. So I don't love losing him if I'm the Phillies. And what I pointed out when I was tweeting this deal out was that the Phillies, they're past the luxury tax threshold, so maybe Veerling means less to them, right? They can go out and sign a backup outfielder, fourth outfield type, to push everyone down the depth chart, 
for like sign him for three or four millions and it's really just a drop in the bucket for them they've already passed the luxury tax threshold who cares at this point right so there's that argument for sure and i think that did play a big role in them making this deal as did on the middle infield side on the on the um nick maton side they signed trey turner this offseason and that bumped bryson stott to second base and now Edmundo Sosa's on the bench, and they just added Cody Clemens in this deal, so their infield depth is looking okay. Uh, but I am a little concerned about what this means for their outfield, and, and Sands, uh, he was never going to get an opportunity at catcher for them. They have Real Mudo. Uh, they really like Garrett Stubbs as a backup, and they have Rafael Marchand in the minor leagues, so they're they're pretty set there. So Sands, is, it's really nothing to them. But yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and, and as you point out, you know, adding such a question mark in Soto and and people like the Tigers pitching development. It's not like they're rescuing Soto from the pirates (laughs) or something and and they're going to fix him. It's like the Tigers pitching development has been pretty solid, at least at the big league level. And they haven't had much success with Soto. So I don't know. Yeah, exactly. So, and, and I saw some comments on Twitter about that, that he's also moving from a pitcher friendly park to a hitter friendly park. So, right. You know, that's yet another challenge from the Phillies development point of view. And to your point, yeah, the Tigers have actually had really strong pieces. They kind of fixed Jimenez after a couple of rough years. Um, They had a couple other guys um, who, you know, have had um, some good success there. They had Fulmer for a while, who they turned into a good reliever. So I don't think... Scooble, Shane Green looked good for a bit. Yeah, so so you got to respect that the Tigers know what they're doing in terms of bullpen. Right, so if they couldn't fix Soto for four years with that incredibly hard high walk rate and other issues, and even his hard hit rate, his exit velocity is one of the worst exit velocity allowed. Four years of that, whereas they've had success with other guys, I'm not sure you can make the case that the Phillies somehow have a magic wand that can fix him, especially since they have a history of overpaying, especially since they have a history of having a lot of trouble with their bullpen pieces. So, and they're a hitter's park. So, yeah. And then to your point about Veerling, okay. You remember in the World Series when he actually started a couple of games because Brandon Mar- they were facing a lefty? Look at Brandon Marsh's um, 2022 splits against lefties. He's got it a 35 WRC plus, a 35. 65% worse than average against lefties. That's what Veerling's job was, to be a platoon guy to come in, and he's a righty, and he hits lefties really well. He's got 110 of WRC+. Plus. So they've just lost that. They've just lost that platoon partner for Marsh. Yes, Marsh is probably better defensively, but what are you doing there? Yeah, you got a gap, to your point. You're going to have to sign another right-handed bat. So now you've not only overpaid for Soto, you're not, gonna, not sure you're going to fix Soto, but now you also have to overpay for a bat to replace Beerling. I'm not sure I get that. And it's kind of slim pickings left out there as far as right-handed hitting outfielders in yeah. free agency. I'm just going to look at the list here. Jerickson Profar, switch hitter, I think that's he's going to get a starting role somewhere, so I don't think they're quite looking at him. Yeah. Uh, but Adam Duvall, eh, Tommy Pham, not a center fielder. AJ Pollock, probably not a center fielder. Jonathan Davis, Jake Marisnik, uh Yeah, center uh... fielder. It's, it's slim pickings, <laughs> right? Because if you're platooning Marsh... 
you know, you got Schwarber on one side and Castellano. I mean, that's that's horrible defensively, right? Right. <laughs> the bottom of the list here, you're looking at Tim LaCastro, Kevin Pillar, Lewis Brinson, Chad Pinder. No, 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 no. Jackson Frazier, formerly, the artist formerly known as Clint Frazier. <laughs> it, it's, yeah, I don't like their options there. The, the thing with this deal is, and, and I think this is why we've gotten a decent amount of pushback on it on Twitter, and people telling us how wrong we are and that this was a great deal for the Phillies because they gave up these guys that aren't important to them. I think what's going to happen here is there's not necessarily a scenario in which this is obviously a loss for the Phillies, right? The worst case scenario seems to be Soto pitches poorly for them for a month or two. He ends up going down to the minors and and can't figure it out or gets hurt or whatever, and, and he gets cut and that's it. And on the Tigers' side of things, Maton and Veerling and Sands are all quality backup platoon types. That seems like the realistic worst-case scenario here. I mean, there's obviously the 99th percentile where Matt Veerling's an all-star, but talking in more realistic terms, there's not really a way that this like very obviously burns them like it would if they gave up three 18-year-old uh, single a prospects and one of them turned into the next i don't know jacob de grom that that there's not a scenario like that the actual worst case scenario is one that's less obvious and less it's harder to blame this trade directly for it but it's if we get into july and the phillies are just falling apart because they've had a couple injuries in the outfield and the infield and their depth isn't as good as it could have been you know, or or a year or two down the line, there's some sort of financial ramifications to not having a more affordable Veerling and Maton and instead having to sign all these backup bench types. So it, it's not going to be as easy to tell if the Phillies really do end up on the wrong end of this trade, if it really goes poorly for them. It's not going to be quite as obvious, but I think it could be pretty bad. <laughs> it, it could still burn them pretty hard, I think. Yeah. Uh, yeah, suddenly they're they're lacking depth like you point like you said dalton guthrie <laughs> come on up <laughs> you may get some playing time mm-hmm. uh, because beyond, and beyond that the farm isn't much so it's not like they can just like call the next guy up from the farm because there's not much there to work with to your point yeah um one last thing from this deal is just that uh they do free up a 40-man spot if they have another addition in mind if they are going to sign something from that crop of free agent outfielders and replace veerling that way they do at least now have a 40-man spot for it so there's that at least yeah all right moving on to the next deal uh this one was really interesting uh the orioles of all teams (laughs) acquired catcher james mccann we had at negative 16.9 million in median trade value as well as cash which was reportedly 19 million from the new york mets in exchange for a player to be named later who has not yet been announced uh this is this one's tentatively accepted it uh obviously we don't know who the player to be named later was but this seems like it'll track pretty well negative 16.9 versus 19 million in cash that's a gap of 2.1 million in positive surplus uh, headed to the orioles there and so nominal player to be named later usually in the zero to two million ish range so this one's going to end up fair yep um 
it's really interesting because James McCann obviously forced out of New York by Francisco Alvarez making it to the big leagues, and he's the catcher of the future there. They have Tomas Nito, who they really like, and McCann just has not been a good signing by the Mets at all. He hasn't hit at all since he joined that team. Um, and w- with this deal, the Mets at least save a little bit of money on him, and we know Cohen and the Mets aren't uh, they aren't too concerned about their money, but with the stage of the luxury tax that they're in, any amount that they are paying gets taxed so heavily that even if they are only saving 5 million on McCann, it's really closer to like 8 million, I believe with with the tax considerations here. That's, that's just kind of a guess. I don't have that number right in front of me. Um, Right. Yeah. So yeah, somebody calculated that. I forget, but but yeah, you're right. Yeah. And and so they get some savings there and they'll get some player demeaning later and and whatever. And their, their team doesn't suffer too much for it. Uh, but the Orioles side of things, it's not a horrible pickup. It's they, they didn't really have a backup catcher to put behind Adley Rutschman, and McCann is a respected veteran. He's seen as a decent defender, and the Orioles have had a quiet offseason. It's been kind of disappointing after they had such a surprising 2022. They didn't seem too intent on capitalizing on it. it at least they haven't traded Cedric Mullins or anything like that, but otherwise it's been a lot more of the marginal-type moves that you might have expected from them. Uh, in previous off seasons, not so much after such a surprisingly solid year. Um, but at, at least they're doing something. <laughs> I don't know. Um, th- th- this is this was a clear need on their roster to have a backup catcher, and they are a, still a young and learning team that could use some veteran leadership here. And so, I, I don't think there's anything really to complain about here from their perspective, at, at least with this deal. No. Um, so from the Mets side, you remember they signed uh, Omar Narvaez on a one-year deal, which really pushed the right. pushed McCann that. out. Yeah, that was the the trigger. <clears throat> um, basically, he pushed McCann out of a job, and so they had to get rid of McCann, and so they didn't have a whole lot of leverage, which is why they kicked in $19 million, which is but, – but it's also a validation that he wasn't – you know, that his negative value in our model was, was you know, was pretty darn accurate. So um, – so yeah, <clears throat> they basically just cut bait, cut their losses with McCann, and saved a couple bucks in taxes. So not that not Steve Cohen doesn't care. Obviously, uh, he's just trying to make his team better. And with the Narvaez signing, they basically bought a year. So Narvaez is a placeholder, and until Francisco Alvarez is ready, Alvarez is only 21. So they'll give him a little time with Nito and and, uh, and playing some time as well. And you know. The Mets have been just, you know, obviously going for it, spending money like crazy, upgrading every every possible, you know, roster spot. And this was another, you know, Narvaez isn't the greatest thing, but it's a marginal upgrade over McCann. So it pushed McCann out. Now, from the Orioles standpoint, yes, I think they could use a guy with some experience. Um, I think Rutschman is good to go. I think he's very mature. It's not like he needs mentorship necessarily, but it can't hurt, right? And he's going to need some time off. You know, catchers don't play every day. So it's a perfectly normal, useful backup for a very cheap cost from the Orioles' perspective. So hard to say. I mean, I, I like it from both sides. And, and it, it, these trades are nice. They feel like kind of a, a bit of a pat on the back, a real sense of validation for us when we do see cash changing hands and it makes the deal line up. Uh, obviously, I don't want to get too ahead of myself. The player being later still hasn't been announced, whatever. Uh, but we we have gotten some questions and some criticism about some of the underwater players on our site and saying that, oh, we're factoring in the money too much and 
I don't think they're they should be that negative value. I don't think they should be hit that hard. This trades like this feel like a validation that yeah we're on the right track here when it comes to that stuff because yeah they had to cover almost they had to cover more than the entirety that we had him underwater by a little bit to to get a trade to happen. And similarly with the Nolan Arenado deal, which is the really the big one we can hang our hat on in this category, was people didn't think that the money mattered for him, and so they were all shocked when he went to Colorado for a bag of baseballs. Well, it's because he was paid a little bit more than at the time it seemed like he was worth, and he's obviously rebounded a ton from that, and with the market inflating and, and all of that, now I, I believe he's in comfortably positive territory at this point but at the time he was coming off a rough season and dealing with some injuries and had a whole lot of money ahead of him and we were pretty confident he was underwater and we were right about that the Rockies had to kick in cash and didn't get a whole lot back so just just feels good it's a it's a reassurance on our end that yes the money does matter and yes we're on the right track with it absolutely I think there is a perception issue um because, you know, people look at Kristen Yelich and say, oh, well, he's still worth something, right? But they're not calculating in their heads. Oh, he's still worth hundreds, 150 or whatever it is. Off the top of my head, I don't know. Um, million through his age 37 season or whatever. And he's going to be worth very close to zero at that point, you know. And and so that's why he's so negative, right? And, you know, he's not really performing all that well. He's like a two-war regular now instead of the star he used to be. And so when you sort of see it from our perspective and you sort of you look at it year by year you always know, getting older he's going to be in decline if he isn't already and he's owed all this money is very negative it's clear and so there's many other cases like that um you know the the article i wrote recently about that and i, I used actually Corey seager as an example of how he was overpaid and i showed that yeah there's surplus now but there's not going to be when he's age 37 so you know, and I think, you know, I got some comments on that, like, oh, now that you put it that way, I see your point. So people aren't really thinking this through. We have an advantage because we're kind of crunching the numbers and we can see it, but not necessarily from the fans' perspective. They're not crunching the numbers. They're only seeing the perception of, oh, Kristen Yelich is still good, right? Surely he has some value. Or Giancarlo Stanton is still good, right? Surely he has some – like, it's not their money, and it's not <clears> – and <throat> you know, they're not doing the calculations. So, you know, but we are, and so it's good to see when it's validating like that. Yeah, and people will respond to that with, well, there, there's obviously a supply and demand thing where even if, let's take Corey Seager, for example, even if Corey Seager is a bit overpaid, if he is a little bit underwater, well, if you want a Corey Seager, there's not that many guys like Corey Seager out there you could acquire. So doesn't that counteract that a little bit? And if you want a Corey Seager, you're going to have to kind of bite the bullet and, and take that he's earning a little bit more money than you'd maybe like. And, and so because of that, you're still going to have to pay him and he, you're still going to have to give up talent for him and, and he should have positive trade value, but not quite. It's not going to, it's not going to counteract it that heavily. We do have that bonus built in for these superstar level players who you're right. There is a lower quantity of a higher, higher demand, lower supply of these star talents. And so we have an adjustment baked in for that, but it's not going to completely overwrite any, financial considerations whatsoever it's going to help them but it's it's not going to just immediately set the surplus to zero or to positive because hey he's good i want him a couple of years ago when the blue jays signed hunjin ryu um i remember getting a comment or two from blue jays fans and you know we had him as slightly negative because we were crunching the numbers um and they said how can he be negative and 
And then I made the point that, you know, 29 other teams, because he was a free agent at the time, 29 other teams decided not to pay that amount. So if you were to turn around and trade him, not that you would, but if you would, in theory, that means that 29 other teams didn't think he was worth what you just paid for him. And so they're not going to pay as much for it, right? So you paid, you were the high bid in the auction. Every other team, you know, lost the bid because they didn't want to pay that much. So why would you think they would want to pay that much if you turned around and traded them? You know, the logic sometimes doesn't make, um, you know, people have to think this through. <laughs> like, oh, okay. I think that's, an, uh, that's a good illustration of it. Yeah, exactly. And that's not, a, not necessarily a hard and fast universal rule because, you know, guys do occasionally take a bit of a discount to go somewhere they like or whatever the case is. That, that does happen from time to time. And so there is a possibility that, and we kind of saw it with, um, I guess not with Carlos Correa, but uh, with uh, Trey Turner. He, he just had that where the Padres offered him more and Aaron Judge, the Padres offered him more, but he decided to go elsewhere because it was, it was a better fit for them. And uh, we see it sometimes where the player, you know, doesn't, the team doesn't hear back from the player and they go, oh, I would have paid them more. And so there's, there's some of that, sure. But in general, when you're talking about this, especially for guys who just did sign a free agent contract, you're right. Every team just had the opportunity to get him and they didn't get him for that dollar amount and that year amount. So why do you think all of a sudden now they're going to be open to paying that dollar amount over that number of years and give something up for that right? That's, yeah. that's not quite how it works. Exactly. And I answered a question on Twitter the other day, too, um, and I'll just repeat that. So, you know, fans love to play the parlor game of, oh, what's that guy going to get in free agency, right? Everyone likes to estimate that. So that's easier because money is the main variable in that game. You know, what's Shohei Atani going to get in free agency? Oh, he's going to get 500 million. He's going to get 600 million. Everyone loves to play this game, right? What are they basing that on? You know, some vague knowledge of the market now. Um, but my point is they will think about the money in a free agent scenario because that's really the only thing. That's, that's, that's the main variable. But most fans don't think about the money, oddly enough, in trade scenarios. They're thinking more about the player's um, you know, field value. And they're saying, okay, well, the money doesn't matter. You can just feed him in because he's good, right? Which is a, which is a weird sort of you know, uh, logical flaw, I think. And now you know, I think there's some sort of human psychology aspect of this uh, because you know, fans are fans and they want to win. And so they're thinking, okay, he's, he's a better player, right? I don't care about the money because it's not my money. And maybe the other sort of factor is um, not all, the money is not always clear. <clears throat> like sometimes in the case of pre-arb guys, like Brian Reynolds said, you know how much Brian Reynolds is going to make over the next three years? Most fans off the top of their head probably wouldn't. You can figure it out. We figured it out. It's probably more like $25 million. But, you know, the average fan is not going to know how much he costs. So they're not thinking about the money in trade scenarios. They're only thinking about, oh, Brian Reynolds is a good player. So what's it going to cost to get him? So it's vague to them. And, and, and I'm not blaming any fans here. I'm just saying it's harder from a psychological point of view and a calculation point of view to do that, which is why we exist. We're doing that job for the fans. So that's our job. Exactly. And one last point I have on this on kind of the other direction is when some of these guys have signed these free agent deals, take Xander Bogarts, for example, it was an 11-year deal for him, I'm pretty sure, and it takes him through his age 40 season or something like that. And so people are going like, oh, ho, silly Padres, you're going to have to be paying Xander Bogarts $30 million a year for his, when he's 39, 40 years old. 
the team knows that. <laughs> and the team knows that he's not likely to be very good in those years. If they are, they'll be they'll be thrilled. But they know that they're not expecting much for those years. That's just kind of the, the price you pay. It's some push and pull where by if the player wants additional years, correct? Like they want to be taken care of throughout the rest of their career, have that consistent paycheck. So they want years and they want control. They want security. The team, in exchange for giving them that security, they're bumping down how much they're paying per year. And that means that on the front end of the contract, when Xander Bogarts is making 30 million for his 29, 30 seasons, there's some surplus there. There's a whole bunch of surplus there. That's yeah. how these contracts work is there's the surplus value up front there. And that's really hard for people to wrap their minds around because all they see is that the best players in the game get paid 30 to $40 million a year. And so they think like, Oh, okay. That's just, that's just a good player salary. That's what that player is worth in that season. That's not quite the case. It's there's, a good amount of surplus there as far as the market works and as far as kind of a dollars per war perspective and we know that straight dollars per war isn't perfect but as far as that perspective that's that's kind of the best gauge we have of this value in 2023 xander bogarts is going to be underpaid by earning more most likely going to be underpaid if he continues his usual production he's going to produce more than 30 million dollars worth of value on the field yes in 20 20 or excuse me 2033 he's probably going to be overpaid he's probably going to produce less than 30 million dollars on the field and so that's what this contract is about it's the first half of the deal the first chunk of the deal the team benefits the team gets some surplus the back half of the deal the player benefits the team the player's underwater and, and they're getting paid more than they're producing and, and over the course of the contract it's expected to average out Obviously, that doesn't always happen perfectly. This isn't an exact science, but that's the plan of the contract. And so that's not, I think there's there's room to criticize these contracts, of course, and saying like, huh, they might not want to have him on their payroll 11 years from now. Or, huh, that's maybe a little bit more than I would want to pay him over those 11 years. But I don't think the criticism of, wow, this is dumb. Don't they know he's going to be bad in 2033? I don't think that's a valid criticism and we see it all the time when these free agents sign these big contracts. Yeah. Uh, so Miguel Cabrera is about to uh, play his age 40 season and he is owed $32 million and he has no field value. So it's just going to be a farewell tour. Um, but yeah, that's, that's a guy who's done basically who's just running out his strength because he's, doesn't want to give up $32 million because, you know, that's what he's owed in his contract. So that's the extreme, one of the extreme examples of the back end of the contract, right? Now, the other thing I want to make is most of these contracts are flat. In other words, the AAV is flat. You know, they're making $30 million a year or whatever. And so that gives you the surplus up front. So, you know, Xander, I forget what he's making, but um, is going to be worth 40-ish, you know, on paper for, for the first year and 38 and then 35 and then 30. And it's going to go down to 25 to 20 to 18 to 15. So, you know, they know that to your point. Now, in theory, teams could say, why don't we just pay you exactly what you're worth for the whole thing? They could have front-loaded it and it would align perfectly with the level of performance. They could have said, okay, Xander, we're going to pay you $40 million now, $38 million next year, 35 the year after that, and so on. And it keeps going down. But why would you do that as a player? Because you're just getting – you're not getting a raise. Most players are used to either getting a raise or at worst having it flat. It just goes against human nature to say I'm going to get less and less and less. 
So they don't do it that way because players don't want it that way. So it has to be kind of consistent. And that's what that's what creates this weird thing where there's more surplus up front and less on the back. Yep. Okay. Uh, I think we can move on from McCann, who, who that was <laughs> the conversation straight a bit from him already. <laughs> but yeah, um, McCann, cool. Um, that's all as far as the real significant trades. I'm just going to start listing off a few of the smaller ones and, and you can stop me when you find a name you want to talk about. Uh, so we got Nick Garcia to the Rockies at 1.5 million in exchange for Joe Connor to the pirates at 1.9 million. Sorry, Connor yeah. Joe, Connor Joe, man. Connor Joe, Connor Joe. I'm reading it from the spreadsheet <laughs> and his last name is first. And those are two first names, Connor. <laughs> Or it's a last name was the first name was the first name was the last name. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but uh, fun, fun-ish player. He, he had some fun moments in Colorado. Um, the White Sox acquire Gregory Santos at 0.6 million from the Giants in exchange for Cade McClure at 0.7. Uh, Lewin Diaz is having a tour around the league this offseason. <laughs> uh, I think there's a few trades uh... of his I could, I could get into here, but uh, he's on some team now. He's back uh, or, on the Orioles, I think, after yeah. the Braves and the Orioles, and then I forget who else, the Marlins. Yeah, yeah been I think there was even someone else in there. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, he's he's having Giants? his little tour around the league. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the Pirates uh, acquired Scott Randall, right-handed pitcher from the D-backs, in exchange for infielder Diego Castillo. Uh, it's Randall at 0.2, Castillo, Castillo at 0.4. Braves are really just shuffling guys around. Uh, they picked up Eli White from the Rangers in exchange for cash. Uh, Eli White at point four. Tigers picked up Tyler Nevin from the Orioles uh, in exchange for cash. Nevin at 0.2. Ryan O'Hearn. I'm real confused about what's going on here with him. Uh, the, <laughs> so I, I want to talk about this for a second. I'm going to derail a little bit and spend a few minutes to talk about Ryan O'Hearn because what the hell is happening here, John? Okay, oh Ryan O'Hearn. Gosh. We, we mentioned this briefly uh, earlier in this offseason because for whatever reason, the Royals jumped the gun and like well ahead of the non-tender deadline, they signed Ryan O'Hearn to a contract. Uh, one year, $1.4 million. Okay, that, that's inoffensive on the surface, right? He's really bad. <laughs> He's really bad at baseball, John. He has a... He has an 82 career WRC plus, and that is really pulled up by his rookie season in 2018. It's, it's been yeah, a while. I know. Uh, his, his WRC plus the last four years, 68, 64, 69, nice, yeah. 72. His yeah. war, negative 1.1, negative 0.4, negative 0.7, <laughs> negative 0.3. Okay, so, so first of all, strange that they're jumping to a contract with him at all. You know, he, he was a very clear non-tender candidate to us. Second of all, strange that they're doing it so far ahead of the non-tender deadline. And third, in the new CBA, I'm pretty sure that contract is guaranteed. It used to be that arbitration contracts, you know, you could dump the guy yeah. in spring training and you'd only owe him right. like the, the minimum or, or some some chunk of it. Now they're guaranteed, I'm, I'm 90% sure. And so Ryan O'Hearn is earning $1.4 million. And granted, that's with the new minimum at 700 k that's not that's not a ton of money. It's, it's just like you're paying two players the minimum, but why? <laughs> That's my first question. My follow-up question, then they DFA'd him very recently. Uh, okay. 
why? <laughs> why? If you're committing that money to him up front, you you figure it's because you want him on your team. So why are you then cutting him later that off season? And then the Orioles traded for him on purpose. They sent the the Royals cash in exchange for him. So okay, now the Orioles are on the books for this 1.4 million. And then I'm pretty sure they just DFA'd him recently. I'm gonna I'm gonna double check this. But what? Yeah, yeah, they DFA'd him this last Thursday. I am so confused by what is going on with Ryan O'Hearn. John, do you have any bit of an explanation for me here? I'm I'm trying. I'm really trying. So I'm thinking, all right, well, he's a lefty bat. He has some power. Maybe because of the new shift rule, they think he's going to benefit. Um, but even if you look at his splits, you know, last year against righties, he was 75 WRC plus. In other words, 25 uh, percentage points worse than average. Better than his lefties. Uh, he's got a 44 against them. So, like, okay, all right, I guess that wasn't it. Did he hit any home runs against righties? Uh, one. <laughs> so, is he, I don't know, is he going to be, like, there's, no. Uh, you know, I think this is just comical, because the Royals basically blew it. They realized, oh, probably shouldn't have signed him. So then they DFA him, and then they trade, and then the Orioles said, okay, well, uh, okay, never mind, we blew it too. So now the Orioles are on the hook for his salary. So two teams basically who blew it. And I don't know what they saw in him in the first place because clearly there's nothing much to see here. I don't think there's any mystery at all. I think maybe it was just like, could he benefit from the shift? It's 1.4. That's a rounding error. Let's try it. And then they said, nope, sorry. Uh, we found somebody better. That's all I can figure. Maybe someone with the Orioles like owed the Royals GM a favor or like lost a bet or something. That's, that's what I'm thinking here. <laughs> you know, and, um, and yeah. And even the new GM of the Royals, we've talked about this in the past, uh, JJ, I can't remember his last name, Pic Piccolo. Um, yeah. You know, and he was the right hand man of the old GM. Right. So, you know, and the old GMs, uh, whose name I'm blanking on at the moment. Um, Dayton uh, Moore. Thank you. Dave, Dayton Moore. You know, his, the main criticism of him is that, you know, he was too loyal, he's overly loyal to his guys, right? He had more heart than head. And so he signed Ryan O'Hearn, you know, when he shouldn't have. And then Piccolo was supposed to be the breath of fresh air. He said, nope, let's use our heads more. But then he didn't use his head. So, like, uh, <laughs> I don't know. I'm actually, okay, now I'm curious about this. I'm going to look this up. And uh, if I need to edit a chunk out of this, I will. What's the timeline here? When was Dayton Moore cut? And when was Ryan O'Hearn originally signed? <laughs> okay, uh, we could be on to something here. Ryan O'Hearn, MLB trade rumors. Uh, da, da, what are we finding here? Claim Lewin Diaz. Ah, that <laughs> Lewin Diaz. The Orioles claimed Diaz and designated O'Hearn for assignment. That's what happened there. Um, da, da, da. Royals announced several roster moves. Okay, it was November 15th that they signed him. That was definitely after Dayton Moore was out of there. So, yeah, uh, never mind. <laughs> um, I, I do want to uh, I want to give Ryan O'Hearn a little bit of credit here. I don't want to just be tearing him down. He had a very, very solid little rookie season. In 2018, he played 44 games and had a 153 WRC+. Plus. Okay. Since then, he's performed well in AAA when he's gone back down there. Okay. And in 2022, it looks like he was hurt most of the year. So if you want to throw that season out, sure, why not? And he's even got an option left if, if you really want some left-handed hitting depth. So I'll give him all of those, but I'm still not getting it. I, I, some, some team's going to claim him, aren't they? They're, they're going to claim him just to mess with us, John. No, I think we've run out of 
you know, uh, <laughs> I think teams know what's up at this point. I would be shocked if anyone claimed him at this point. I really would. Um, you know, I think there's probably better options. If you're looking for a first base bat with power, I mean, Jesus Aguilar is still out there. Trey Mancini is still out there. you got a few options. You don't need Ryan O'Hearn. Yeah, power first basemen are actually one of the positions that there's a decent amount of them left uh, on the free agent market at this point. Mancini, Luke Voigt, Edwin Rios. Edwin Rios can do anything O'Hearn can do, but cheaper and play some third base while he's at it. There you go. Colin Moran, Brandon Belt, uh, Aguilar that you mentioned, Mike Moustakis is free now, Yuli Gurriel, yeah, okay. Yeah. Nobody <sighs> needs O'Hearn. Yeah. All right, last couple ones here, a couple more cash deals. Bly Madris, excellent name, goes to the Astros uh, for cash. He's at $0.2 million and he was previously with the Tigers. Are you and... sure about his pronunciation there? Is it Bly Madris or Bly Madris? And I am I feel unsure. like he comes out of an Agatha Christie novel. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, that's a good call there. Let's see what... Uh... Yeah, it, according to baseball reference, at least, Bly Madris. Okay. The emphasis is on Driss. Fair enough. <laughs> this this episode's off the rails. Uh, and last one, Connor Ullman, uh, 0.0. I have no certainty on that pronunciation. Uh, Phillies picked it's, him up in the Cubs Eric, in exchange for Eric, cash. Josh, it's Eric, Josh. Eric Ullman. Eric oh, my Ullman. goodness. <laughs> I'm all over the place. I'm rusty. It's been three weeks since our last episode. Um, John, I don't think you have Bryce Wilson on our transaction list did i did i forget to add that i'm sorry he was yeah, at, he must he's not in our he spreadsheet at, let's he was at it. zero <clears throat> okay um, he basically exhausted his options and his usefulness he was once a top prospect though anyway he was he was at zero value and he was traded for uh cash right so that's presumably 0.1 yep and he goes to the brewers do i have that right yeah okay and then similarly the uh so he was the pirates headliner uh, in the Richard Rodriguez trade from a couple deadlines ago. And remember, Richard Rodriguez, uh, he was uh, assumed to be a, a big sticky stuff guy. He had a great start to the year, and he looked like a good trade candidate. And then as soon as the sticky stuff ban came into effect, his numbers tanked, and he ended up going to the Braves at the very last minute of the deadline for basically spare parts. And so now Wilson was the headliner there. He didn't work out for the Pirates. Now he's gone. Uh, but the Pirates also DFA'd Zach Thompson this week, and he was one of the main pieces of their trade of Jacob Stallings to the Marlins. And so that's two key pieces of these trades in the last couple years that the Pirates, who are still very bad and still have room on their roster to give opportunity to these type of guys, uh, they, they cut them loose. And that's really just a testament to the Pirates. I, I don't think it's it's bad or these were mistakes by the Pirates, per se. I mean, both of these guys struggled since joining their organization. And, you know, at some point, you got to cut bait and make room for, for new talent and, and younger guys to push their way into the show. But I think it's more than anything a testament to the depth of the Pirates system and how great of a job they've done in their rebuild to this point. And they have a pretty strong farm and a lot of those guys are starting to need protection from the rule five draft. And so it's just a, a 40 man, man crunch situation there now. And, and plus they, they have signed a few interesting ish free agents this off season that they needed to make some room for. There's Carlos Santana, Austin Hedges, uh, Rich Hill, Vince Velasquez, Harleen Garcia. These are decent yeah. pickups that could, 
get them better prospects at the deadline. They picked up Jose Hernandez in the Rule 5 draft. He's kind of interesting as a lefty reliever. Uh, we mentioned they traded for Connor Joe. They picked up Miguel Andujar off waivers. Uh, that, that was last season, actually, that they got Andujar. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're they're doing the kind of shuffle that a rebuilding team should. And uh, I, I think they're doing a pretty decent job of it. I, I think they're handling this portion of the rebuild pretty well. Yeah. Just a note on Bryce Wilson. So I mentioned he was at one point early on a top 100 prospect. Uh, the Braves had some high hopes for him. I remember him even, I think, starting a playoff game a couple of years ago and doing okay in it. <clears throat> he had a good fastball. But he just never um, – I'm not a pitching expert, so I'm not sure what went wrong. But he clearly just did not deliver the results. He's got a 0.1 total F4 over five seasons. So, and, you know, not much to recommend in, in terms of ERA or predictors or FIP. They're all sort of on the high side. So something's wrong there. But maybe the Brewers can figure out something to work with. Maybe he can turn into a, a useful reliever, given that he probably still throws hard. He himself said he got away from his fastball. Maybe that's the key to him. But they didn't give up anything. So go figure. So um, good luck to them. But I, I, I have a funny little feeling that there's something left in the tank in Bryce Wilson. It's only 24. It's going to be 25 this year. So, you know, and typically, you know, players and pitchers as well peak between 26 and 28. So it's a good gamble by the Brewers. Yeah, it's not a bad pickup there. They need some pitching depth. Yeah, and worst um, comes to worst, he's out of options. They didn't give up anything. Yeah. He's DFA, whatever. Yeah. yeah. I actually missed one trade that was in the spreadsheet and that I had a tab pulled up for, and that's Lucas Lutke to the Braves. So Lutke yeah, at $0.8 million. Uh, left-handed reliever. It was pretty solid with the Yankees, just got forced out 40-man crunch situation there as well uh in exchange the yankees receive caleb durbin and indigo diaz just great name there yeah uh, <laughs> diaz is a right-handed pitcher had at 0.6 million and durbin an infielder wasn't in the system at the time of the trade but now we have him at 0.1 so it lines up 0.8 versus 0.6 and 0.1 um anything else here um Lukey's interesting. The Braves needed another left-handed reliever, and he's certainly capable. He was kind of a a fan favorite in New York because he was a a solid-ish, interesting-ish left-handed reliever early in his career with the Mariners, and then he disappeared for half a decade and then popped up out of nowhere in 2021 and was solid for the Yankees for two years. So that's that's how you earn yourself some fans is is by having a story like that. And now uh, it's not like... He was a guy that as soon as he was DFA'd, you knew he was going to get traded for at least something. Mm -hmm. He he very clearly had some value. And that's obvious here because he went to one of the best teams in baseball on the Braves, and he's going to get a chance to be a part of a World Series push next year. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And he had some some back-to-back seasons of sub-3 RA and some real effectiveness as a lefty. So um, Yankee fans are sort of wondering why they DFA'd him because he's got some control left as well. Um, and, and I'm going to point to the value killer. He was out of options. Yeah. And so they took a chance with him and they basically, you know, said they don't have a roster spot for him. So as good as he is, you know, um, that out of, out of option status is just, it doesn't give you any flexibility. Indigo Diaz, another name for our Agatha Christie novel. Um, yeah, I'm not sure. <laughs> I, I picture him as like, you know, some exotic villain with a knife. I don't know why. Um, I picture uh, him as a clue character. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Indigo Diaz in the conservatory. Um, 
anyway with the baseball he, bat i guess he's a pitcher <laughs> yeah right exactly with the, the candlestick um so um lost my train of thought. oh yeah so i think he has like one interesting pitch um but in his case he was rule five eligible he was not selected uh, which is never a good sign um but at least they don't have to put on the 40 for a while until next year so then maybe uh, develop an opportunity him for there uh for that so basically the yankees are just sort of getting rid of a guy with you know some some uh usefulness who's out of options for a guy who maybe they can develop a little bit um so that happens um the other thing i want to point out is one thing that we've been doing lately is when a dfa is announced um we cut their value we cut their field value in particular um uh, because you know what happens in that case is they're on the the team that DFA's in has lost leverage. They're on the clock. It's either trade him or or he's getting picked up over waivers or nothing. So they have completely lost leverage. All the other teams know that, and it's working out really well. The values are lining up very well on time and time again in terms of these these DFA trades. So I feel like you know that makes sense. You know from a logic standpoint as well as from a you know actual data point standpoint. So in yep, other words, that's... before Luca was DFA'd, he had higher value. But because he was DFA'd, we docked him, and it worked out fair. Yeah, and that's obviously not saying that he became worse <laughs> because he was DFA'd or right. he became necessarily less desirable. Right. But like you said, just loss of leverage there entirely yeah. because now no matter what, especially if it is a player with some usefulness, some utility like Lutke, no matter what, the Yankees are losing him. It's just a question of how. Okay, those are all of the trades, at least. Uh, we have a couple extensions to talk about, though. This one was a bit of a surprise to me. I really thought the Red Sox were just going to completely drop the ball on, on this because they've, they've done that pretty consistently, it seems, in recent <laughs> recent memory. Uh, but they ended up locking up Rafael Devers, and uh, they signed him to an 11-year deal worth $331 million. Um, I believe that's on top of the 17.5. Oh, no, no, no. Uh, it's That's not on top. That's including the $17.5 million salary for 2023 uh, in arbitration. So it's really a 10-year extension on top of that worth $313.5 million. Uh, no opt-outs, no no-trade clause. Devers is 26, so that takes him through his age 37 season, I believe. And uh, he was going to be a free agent after this year. Uh, he's the last big name there they obviously traded uh, Mookie Betts away they lost Xander Bogarts in free agency this offseason and so Devers became really the last hope there of them keeping one of those core superstars from that last World Series team in town for a while um, actually correction there Devers wasn't on that last World Series team but one of their uh, core guys um, actually what year did were they last in the World Series was that 28 2018 didn't they win it yeah so he was there he was there yeah 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 yeah, yeah. i i was thinking 2013 i i had a brain fart um but yeah devers great player he's he's just a really really professional hitter um there's been some on and off questions about his defense over at third base seems pretty likely at some point in his deal he'll be shifting to a first base dh role Um, but at least for now he's a capable enough third baseman and he's a really great hitter and entering his prime years, only 26 right now on the younger end. Um, I think there's a chance he could have done a little better than this in free agency, but there's a lot of risk involved in in going for that. Um, so I think I think at least from a feel perspective, this 
feels like a really fair deal, a fair extension. And uh, I'm pretty sure the numbers agree, right? Yeah, we tweeted this out the other day that it turned out very fair. So uh, we have him at uh, fair value for these 11 years at 336.6, and he's getting 331 total. So difference of 5.6, which is nothing. It's a rounding error, especially when you consider it's over 11 years. Um, I will say the farther in time you get out, the harder it is to predict, obviously. So there's a bunch of assumptions in here. So don't take it too literally. It's just to give you a ballpark. And so the ballpark is saying, yeah. All things considered, it's fair. And we're considering also the fact, as we noted earlier, Devers is a big star. So, you know, he's getting a little bit of a bump for that star. Um, so that's, you know, also helps bring it in line. Um, one thing I noted in that tweet also is uh, we have definitely noticed that <clears throat> when you're a player with one year of control or less and you sign an extension, you're getting fair market value. You're getting full market value. And that's what um, the numbers are showing us right now. Uh, Mookie Betts was another example. He got full market value uh, when he signed with one year of control as well. Uh, because it makes sense. The closer you are to free agency, you're thinking, okay, well, I'll just wait a year to free agency and I'll get top dollar. Why would I take less than that? It's just a year away. Um, so once they're that close, you know, I mean, yes, there's some risk. Oh, what if I break my leg? Uh, yes, but that risk is minimal compared to the track record they've built to that point. They know um, they have a lot of the, the percentage, the probability of getting to free agency reasonably intact with their usual production is very high, right? So they know that. So they know, okay, well, at this point, I'm just going to wait it out to free agency. So they have all the leverage. So the team says, okay, well, I'm not going to get a deal then i just want you here on my team so i'm gonna have to pay full value so that's how those typically work out you know the ones that are farther away from free agency is the ones where each side gives a little bit and so there's some surplus value left the player says okay i'll take less because i want the certainty of it now and the team says okay we'll pay you now um but we're not gonna pay you full market value because <clears throat> we don't have to yet because we've got leverage but when you're one year away fair market value and the addition for for uh, those deals that are further away, um, and we're going to talk about one of those in just a second, but is that the team's taking on some risk there by guaranteeing that money when they could choose to just right. go year to year, and if the player right. just craps out on them, no risk whatsoever, they cut bait. That's right. Um, uh, oh, I, I want to add, and not to, again, be patting ourselves on the back too much here or anything, but the model has done really well this offseason in terms of these larger contracts, be it an extension or the free agent deals, they've lined up very well for the most part. And that's, I don't want to say surprising, but that, I'd say that wasn't necessarily a guarantee coming into the offseason, uh, given so many factors at play and just the variability with these larger contracts, where if our projections on a player are off by half a win for the 2023 season from what teams are expecting them to, to perform at then that's gonna cascade down a 10 11 year deal and leave you with like i don't know how, i don't even know how much it's gonna leave you off by tens of millions of dollars on a contract projection but we've really kind of hit the nail on the head with with, with this one with uh, i believe aaron judge was really aaron close. judge um, is right there 360.9 against 360 
Turner was a little off, if I remember correctly. It's, it's pretty close. It's pretty close. Looking it up now, we have a two eighty seven point nine against three hundred. So yeah, you know, it's minus twelve. It's a round error year per deal, year. So it's minus one per year. You know, so and, and minus one yeah. per year. And I know it's not it's not a yeah. perfect comparison, but if you were using a dollar per war of uh, of ten million of ten million per war, and, and I know there's inflation involved. This is just back yeah. of the napkin type type where I'm going with this, but one million a year is we're looking at a tenth of a win. <laughs> that's that's a yeah. rounding error. Yeah, uh, Xander Bogarts, we have a two eighty six, got two seventy five. So mm-hmm. yeah, we're good. And <clears throat> Edwin Diaz is one I want to point out because that was yeah. the first real indicator. Uh, behind the scenes, John had showed me some free agent projections that he'd done. Uh, going into the off season, and and one of them was five years, a hundred million for Edwin Diaz. And I was like, yeah, that that sounds pretty good. I mean, it's a record for a reliever, and so I could see it being off in either direction because he's the best reliever to hit free agency in a while. And then like a week or two later, he's signing a five year, hundred and two million dollar deal, and it's like, okay, there it is. <laughs> so yeah, so I mentioned earlier that we were. Um doing some market calibration as we're seeing free agent uh, prices kind of on a dollar per war basis and double and triple checking that, you know, trade candidates, in particular Gleyber Torres for one, and, you know, a bunch of pitchers and other guys that, you know, from a trade value perspective who are under team control, you know, you'll see their numbers that have been adjusted over the last month or so uh, based on what we're seeing in the free agent market. But for free agents as a whole, you know, what we're finding is that uh, the numbers line up pretty well. Yeah. Um, I think that's all I have on Devers, uh, but we do have one other significant extension to talk about. And uh, John, were you surprised when this one came through? Because I sure wasn't. <laughs> I, I was maybe surprised at the timing of the Sean Murphy extension, being that it was a couple <laughs> days after Christmas. But if anybody's been paying attention to baseball, if anyone's been paying attention to the Braves in the last 12 months, uh, this is just their MO. So yeah, once again... They've rescued a star from Oakland and immediately paid him handsomely. <laughs> they did it last offseason with Matt Olson, and now they do the same with Sean Murphy. They traded for him from the A's just a few weeks ago, and they've already come to an agreement with him on an extension. Uh, it's a six-year, $73 million deal with a $15 million club option. Murphy was in his first year of arbitration, so this buys out three guaranteed years of free agency with a club option for a fourth. Um and this one, I believe we had is just a little bit under market value. So uh, actually, I'll, I'll let you get into that a little bit further. But uh, the list of extended Braves is, is it's, it's insane. Austin Riley, Matt Olson, Ronald Acuna Jr., Ozzie Albies, Spencer Strider, Michael Harris, and now Sean Murphy. Really, the only guys they're missing are, are Vaughn Grissom and Max Freed. <laughs> Those are the main pieces of their core that aren't extended yet and Grissom still has plenty of time to sign one of those Freed still has a few years himself Uh, this core is just impressive you know the Braves farm is absolutely depleted from all of these trades but it doesn't really matter they have an excellent young core all locked up for the next handful of years so really impressive work there we can talk a bit about you know some of the incentives here in place for Murphy to sign what might have been a below market deal but first I'll let you Talk about the numbers themselves and, and how it kind of compared to what we might have expected. Yeah. So before Murphy was traded, I think we had him at 51 million ish in surplus value. Um, and then if you look at the trade in two pieces, and we've discussed this, um, the A's got, uh, the Braves gave up 
exactly very close to that. It was like 49-ish, 50, somewhere right around there. The, the subsequent move to flip Contreras to the Brewers was off, but the actual first step of the trade between the A's and the Braves was fine. So that, in my view, kind of validated Murphy's uh, value. So he was at, you know, 51-ish in surplus. After signing this deal and sort of extending the years a bit, you know, he's at 63. So he actually left a little bit more money on the table than he should have. And people who've been watching the market, as we were just discussing, it's been pretty hot, are thinking, okay, you probably could have gotten more. Like, what is going on with these guys signing undervalued, you know, from the player's perspective, from their agent's perspective? Why are they doing this? Um, so it does raise a, a legitimate question. But clearly, they're doing a lot of things right in Atlanta. Clearly, a lot of players like playing for them. Clearly, they're going to be a contender. They all like being part of the same core. Murphy reunites with his buddy Matt Olson, and they're all sort of around the same age, and they're all good, and they're under contract for at least six or seven years, if not more. So, like, they've got a whole family vibe down there, and it's a good place to play. So you can see sort of the non-baseball reasons, but you can also see that, hey, you know, I'm getting paid sooner than I would have if I gotten free agency, just like we talked about earlier. You know, the the um, the player gets paid sooner and that's an incentive for them and it gives them sort of a insurance policy risk like oh if worst case what happens i'm still getting paid a good chunk of money so it's a fair trade-off for them the last point i will make purely from a geeky financial point of view is you know when you get paid you know money earlier you can invest it and that money will grow and more so than if you got paid that same amount four or five years later so it accumulates faster so there's that additional sort of hidden advantage of getting paid earlier so that could be another reason yeah, and we talked, I mean, I don't know if we've specifically discussed this on the podcast before, let me be clear, but it's been a large talking point within baseball folks about the Ozzy Albies extension when it came through and kind of some of the incentives that were in place there for Ozzy Albies to take what was just a massively low ball contract. Um, and this isn't the same thing. This isn't anywhere near the same highway robbery that that one was. But there were some similar incentives in place here, I think. You, you mentioned kind of the family vibes, and he's, he's playing with his buddy Olsen and all that stuff. And that's a, a, very, a very good point, and I think that was a factor. But Murphy also just hasn't made any money yet in his career. He wasn't a, a massive prospect out of the draft. It looks like he signed with the A's, um, I think, third round it looks like here for seven hundred and fifty three thousand dollars yeah that's right. not a big bonus and he spent a few years in the minor leagues not getting paid a whole lot then he gets to the big leagues and he makes big league minimum for three years and he's not a guy who was really going to get paid too handsomely in arbitration right he is a phenomenally valuable player but a lot of that doesn't show up in the traditional arbitration stats he was a 5.1 f4 player but he hit 250 he had 66 RBIs. He hit 18 homers. And so, you know, yeah, he's got the traditional, uh, he's got the gold glove, which is something that arbitration would care about. But beyond that, he wasn't going to get paid quite as much as a player of his caliber should in, in the arbitration process. And so, so he's really locking in a lot of money here that from his perspective, you know, we see it as, as likely to have been received by him. But that's not necessarily the case. He's also a little bit on the older end since he's a catcher and catchers can be late bloomers. So he's 28, um, just getting into his first year of arbitration. He is a catcher and I don't blame any catcher for wanting to take some guaranteed money up front just in case their knees blow out on them or they get concussed or anything like that. There's a whole lot of risk in that position that you don't see 
you know, a third baseman or a left fielder necessarily having to account for. So I think there's a lot going on here that um, really justifies, I'm not going to, I'm not blaming Murphy at all for taking this deal. I'm not yeah. giving, I'm not criticizing him at all for leaving any of this money on the table. It's a totally fair decision. And if somebody wants to offer me $73 million, I, I'll say yes, even if you think I could get, <laughs> you know, 80 or 90 in a couple of years. Um, I'll, I'll take $72 million today. You know, I'll, I'll do him one better and I'll donate 2% to the Braves Foundation. How about that? Yeah. I mean, you know, by the time he hit free agency, he'd be 30-ish, right? And so at that, you know, with a few years of wear and tear on him, and then maybe he doesn't get as much money, you know, maybe he's going two years at a time or a year at a time at that point. So um, this way, he's sort of, you know, locking it in. And as I mentioned earlier, maybe he can like make that money work for him as well. Um, but you make a good point. Um, the lifespan or the, the career span of a catcher is shorter. Um, if you look at Yasmani Grandal and the deal he got four years, 73, I think it was, uh, from the White Sox, and now he's completely fallen apart. And once they start their decline with catchers in particular, that decline is pretty real. Like in other case, in some cases, it's kind of a bumpy stock market chart. In in the case of catchers, it's pretty, it's pretty, you know, it's down. It's 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 a smooth slope. You remember Jonathan Lucroy? He was good until he was not good, and then he yeah, then he cratered. Like that's the way catchers do it, um, because their knees go out. I remember um, Buster Posey after, you know, his big comeback year, and then he retired. He said, "Look, my body just can't take it anymore. I'm done. It, it was painful. I put all I had into that one season, but I can't do it anymore." And he left some money on the table because he was done. So catchers have a rough, yeah, it's rough on their bodies, and so I don't blame you at all. To your point, I'm taking the money now. And if things go really well for Murphy on this contract to the point where it's like, wow, I shouldn't have signed this. I cost myself so much money. Like, yeah, he's going to have a three-year deal waiting for him on the other end of it from from somebody if things go really well. If they just go kind of well, you know, maybe maybe he's not an all-star by the end of the deal, but he's still a solid catcher. Then he, he's he's got probably three or four more years in him of going year to year and getting these five to ten million dollar one-year free agent offers to be a backup catcher, defense-first veteran, Mike Zunino type at this point, you know? Uh, and if things go poorly, then it sure is a good thing he signed this money. You know, he, he guaranteed himself this money. So I, I don't think there's a way, really, he's a loser with this. I think uh, in what you would maybe call the worst-case scenario, he's just locked himself in $73 million. And in the next worst-case scenario, he's probably got a couple significant contracts waiting for him on the other end of this anyway. As the old expression goes, nobody ever went broke taking a profit. I like it. All right, uh, that's it for the extensions. We do have a little bit of free agency to talk about. I don't know how far we want to get into this. Um, I'm going to start just by knocking out some of these uh, actual signings, let's say. Uh, Nathan Eovaldi, he signed for two years, $34 million with the Rangers. There's a bit of a weird third-year option there based on the innings he he pitched. I'm not going to go too into it. Um, I thought he would get burned by accepting the qualifying offer. Uh, he didn't quite get burned per se, or excuse me, by rejecting the qualifying offer from the Red Sox. Uh, he didn't quite get burned per se, but he also didn't necessarily see the bump in the market that we saw a lot of other players get. Uh, he actually got... Uh, pretty close to fair value here. We have him at negative 0.4 in surplus after signing this deal. Uh, do you have any anything you want to add about Eovaldi? Uh, no, except that you know he has been volatile, right? And the Rangers, 
are okay with that because you know when the preseason started they had john gray and and who knows what else dean dunning and whoever glenn otto i mean like they needed a rotation right so they took the risk because they want the reward they took the risk on on degrom um heaney's he's kind of is what he is but i think of all these another guy who has upside and then when he's at his best like you saw in the 2018 world series and the lead up to that he can really like get on a roll and be excellent and so i think that's what they're hoping for from him and you know it's a two-year commitment so it's fine yeah i I agree and it's really boomer bust with that whole rotation there um speaking of kind of boomer bust with some upside here the giants uh pivoting from somebody we'll talk about in just a second and instead signing uh michael conforto outfielder to a two-year 36 million dollar deal um, there is an opt-out in his contract based on plate appearances as well. Um, and we had this one at pretty close to fair as well. So we have him at negative one. Uh, he missed the entire 2022 season with, was it a shoulder injury? Um, yeah, shoulder surgery yeah. after a pretty down 2021. But before that, he was looking like a really solid player. And I believe he's a bit on the younger end as a, yeah, he's 29. So a, not quite as much as he would have been last off season, but he's, he's not old or anything. Um, and yeah, he's a solid left-handed bat for them. I think Giants fans were hoping for more from the Giants this off season, uh, but he's at least a, a quality player for them and they get him at a fair market price. Yeah. This one's interesting from a modeling perspective because he missed all of last year. Right. So at first glance, you might think, oh, he produced nothing last year. Well, obviously, that's because he was out with an injury. So you really have to kind of draw a line through 2022 and think about as like 2021 was his last year. And even then, I think he had a little bit of injury issues. So you have to kind of say, okay, what is a healthy Conforto? And that's where the value is. And then you can adjust for, okay, maybe he's not the same, but that's probably not it's just not a hundred percent necessarily maybe he's at 80 percent, and so you just kind of take it from there and that's what we did and it works out pretty close i think it's what the giants did too yep uh speaking of boomer bust i think this is the most boomer bust free agent anyone signed phillies picked up craig kimbrell <laughs> one year 10 million dollar <laughs> deal <Our> old buddy <laughs> uh i i really feel like we get there's there's two options here with this only two options it's he's dfa'd in june <laughs> or he's got a sub 220 ERA by the end of the year with like 30, 35 saves, something like that. Those are the only two ways this can go. <laughs> I, yeah. I, I kid a little bit. Uh, this is, this looks like fair value for him. We have him at negative uh, 0.5 on this deal. So yeah. right so, in the fair territory. Yeah. So one year looks like we have him at 9.5. He's under 10. So round it up. So it's fair. Um, and look, there's another risk reward. They just traded for Soto and, and they've got Kimbrell. And yes, it could fall apart, but they really obviously need, I mean, they have World Series aspirations again. They're trying to win it all after going there. And so, you know, they're they're focusing on, and this is what Dombrowski does. He focuses on talent, um, but he also, in this case, paid the right price for it. So I have nothing else to add. Yep. And last one, back to the Giants, actually, is they signed left-handed reliever Taylor Rogers to a three-year $33 million uh, contract. He joins Tyler Rogers, his twin brother, who's a right-handed funky pitcher. That's going to be hijinks for the next few years over there in San Francisco. And it's a, it's a feel-good signing for sure. Uh, but they're also both pretty good pitchers. Uh, Rogers, we have we have this as a bit of an overpay. He's at negative eight point eight. So, the, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I said a bit of an overpay, but maybe 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 more more than a bit. Uh, there there was some money spent there that perhaps didn't need to perhaps this was a bit of a reaction to 
missing out on these other big free agents. Perhaps there was more incentive to, to go get him because of having Tyler Rogers there already. Um, but Taylor Rogers was really looking like one of the better left-handed relievers in the game until he hit a rough patch in 2022. So if he's back to that 2021, 2020, 2019 form, I think this one looks a lot better and a lot fairer, but we can't can't guarantee that after the 2022 season. Exactly, and our model kind of waits the most recent season, as most models do, um, and so we notice that fall off, and so that's why there's a gap there. So the 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 Giants are hoping for, to your point, the you know the guy he was before that. I mean, after that hater trade, and he was traded for the Brewers, and he really didn't do well, and there was a lot of negativity around. Oh, we traded a hater, and we got this bomb. And so, yes, I know it's just fans talking, but there was real sort of data that says no, he was not good at that point. I don't know if it's you know he got tired or what happened, but you know maybe now the hope is he's with his brother and they can kind of tag team a little bit and goof around a little bit and and positive vibes. So, but yeah, fair value wise, we have him at twenty four ish, twenty four point two, and they paid thirty. So on a year by year basis, not that bad. He's worth eight a year and they pay 11 a year, but whatever it adds up to in three years is a little bit of a stretch for a reliever when he's coming off a shaky year. So that's why. Yep. All right. I want to very, very briefly talk about Carlos Correa because it's the biggest story, not because necessarily we have too much from a trade value perspective to say here. Uh, but wow, this Carlos Correa thing is a mess. Uh, so he originally signed with the Giants. I don't think we actually got to discuss that on... I, I, should, I should clarify, he didn't sign with the Giants. He originally, reportedly, agreed to a deal with the Giants. Um, and I don't think we covered that on our last podcast episode, but it was going to be a very large contract. I'm trying to find the exact number here. I believe it was 13 years and 365, or is that not the right number? Um, I am trying to find this. Uh, 13 years, 350 million uh, was his original agreement with them. And they even got to the point of they had a press conference ready for him. And then the day of the press conference, they called it. They said, whoops, they, we've hit a snag. We're, we're canceling the press conference. And then that night at like midnight Eastern, because Carlos Correa is incapable of doing anything at a normal time. He <laughs> signed with the Twins last year at like two in the morning Eastern time. And this isn't much of a complaint for me because I don't live in the Eastern time zone, but I'm sure it's annoying for some folks. <laughs> but late at night, suddenly, out of nowhere, no buzz, no nothing, we hadn't even heard that the deal was having issues, just that something weird had happened. John Heyman drops a tweet, Carlos Correa to the Mets. <laughs> and Twitter blew up a little bit. Um, and their agreement, 12 years, 200, or not 200, excuse me, 12 years, 315 million. So a smaller total and, and one year fewer that's still not finalized either because there has been extensive haggling there was with the giants and there has been with the mets and now the twins are lurking on the peripheries of of this uh situation uh, and this is all because of carlos correa's i believe his leg his right leg uh which was reconstructed back in 2014 when he was in the minor leagues hasn't been an issue for him in the big leagues but teams now that they're getting to see him up close on a physical are expressing concerns over how it'll hold up over the course of a 12 or 13 year contract. Um, that's, that's the lowdown. Uh, we could go way more in depth on that if we wanted to, but I don't think that's quite our area here. Uh, but I will pass it over to you and see what you think here. And, and maybe if you have any predictions about how this will end up. 
So before the season started, <clears throat> did an initial sort of pass just behind the scenes, and it, he was kind of the lowest of you know the four big name shortstops, because and noted because of injury risk issues. And so then when the Giants uh, purport, you know, proposed, to, proposed to sign him, it seemed like an overpay. And then when the Mets deal came in, as reported, it seemed like, yeah, that's fair value because those it's less of a year commitment. And so the, um, you know, when you shave off two years, it really you know, shaved off some risk. Um, but we're not medical experts. We're not seeing the physical, so we don't know exactly to what degree what they're seeing. Um, we're only basing it on you know what we've seen in the numbers and data, and we know he's had some injury history with uh, back issues, and you know. So, but we'll, clearly, what's going on here is a little bit more serious than we even had first anticipated. So, um, you know, I think the the question is, <clears throat> okay, he's probably he's played through it, whatever it is. Um, I've heard it was a reconstructed ankle um, from like 2014, so it's been eight years old. And yeah, he's still in the prime of life. He's what, 26, 27, 28, somewhere in there. And so like you can still kind of get by with like, okay, I'm good for a while because I'm at the prime of life. But the concern is, okay, what happens when he's 34, 35, 36 and he's starting to creak a little bit and some other injuries popping up and maybe because he's favoring one thing, it's going to cause a, a, a knock-on effect on another thing like his back. I think that's what they're thinking about. Like, oh, if we're giving him 11 years or whatever, you know, those last five are going to be ugly. And so now they're trying to say, okay, well, let's either cut down the years or let's cut down the risks in some other way. Maybe there's opt-outs. I don't know. So – you know, but I think they're at a, an impasse because this is, you know, this is Correa's big chance at a payday. You know, he basically opted out of his twins year. He was going year by year there um, to get like a long term, you know, this is my my deal for the rest of my life here um, thing. And now that's falling through. So maybe he goes back to the twins. Maybe it's again on one of those sort of shorter term contracts. Maybe he has to prove it. But the big, but I don't know if that he can't because the the big issue again is what's he going to be like when he's older. And so we won't know that for a few years. We can only guess right now. We don't have the medicals, uh, but clearly it's more serious than we first thought. Yeah, I think it's interesting to me. Uh, reportedly, the twins are still interested, and I think there was like a ten year two eighty five number thrown out. Uh, something along those lines that the Twins had been willing to max out at. And I think that's intriguing, uh, just because they're the team who theoretically has the most, the clearest picture of his medicals at this point, since they just had him. And so they, they and they'd already signed him. They've already reviewed his medicals last offseason and still agreed to that contract. So obviously different situation since that was kind of a year-to-year -year contract and the concern appears to be longer term but you think they have a pretty clear picture of his medicals and they're still involved at that length uh, at least uh, reportedly so i think something still gets done i think it's still a longer term deal but i don't have any feel for where it's going to be i there's talks about potential um what's the word i'm looking for potential tampering uh, on the Mets side of this, because Steve Cohen has already basically discussed the deal publicly, saying, hey, he was the last piece we needed, and now if they back out, that's not a great look, and there's there's some rules in the CBA against that, I'm pretty sure. Um, so th this is nothing, <laughs> nothing but messy here. <laughs> it's not going to be pretty. He's going to end up somewhere, though. He's going to get a lot of money, I think. He's going to benefit by being the last guy out there. You know, uh, reportedly the Giants aren't interested in circling back there, and things could change at any any point here. Um, 
but I don't think we're going to see a situation where the Giants say, ah, screw it. We need to get our guy. We we really blew it at first here. We've blown it with a lot of big free agents over the last few years. We're just going to do it. I don't think that's the, the outcome here. I could see him negotiating something with the Mets where there's some sort of a provision where if he gets injured in that specific way, then they get an opt-out or, or something or the, the value decreases. I could see him negotiating something like that. I could see the Twins actually swooping in and agreeing to something here. And I could see, you know, I think a few people have tweeted out that the funniest way this all ends is with a Braves press release from the Twitter account. Just, just out of the blue, we've, we've signed Carlos Correa to a however many year <laughs> deal. Because that's how they like to operate. Nobody has the scoop on the Braves. Um, there's a lot of different possibilities here. I won't speculate too much because I genuinely have no clue where this goes next. Nobody does, I don't think. Uh, Scott Boris, Correa himself, you know, I, I don't know if anybody does. I do think it is significant, um, maybe even legally significant, that Cohen said something publicly about him, you know, so joining the Mets. So, you know, that may be, that may bind them to him in some way. And so that gives Correa some leverage. And Boris, of course, you know, loves leverage. He's going to, he's going to take all he can. So, um I sort of feel like a deal is going to get done because nobody wants legal hassles. So, you know, they're going to work something out. And, you know, I don't understand why Cohen would make, you know, okay, let me back up a step. They made a big deal out of the Coomer Rocker uh, medicals after they drafted him and they realized they weren't comfortable. And so they basically said bye-bye and got, and got reimbursed for the draft pick this year. So clearly there's something in their sort of organization that says, no, let's not take chance on bad medicals. On the other hand, Cohen, he doesn't care about money, obviously, as we've seen. So it's like, well, okay, I'm sure you can negotiate some sort of middle ground there where if the money doesn't matter to him and it does matter to Correa, then they can work it out. And I'm sensing that they will at some point. Yep. I, I think that's probably the likeliest outcome. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, we are at probably a little over the 90 minute mark tough to tell here because we had a bit of a blip in the middle of it but i just want to very very briefly just uh let the folks know that i did do a roster revamp over the holidays first one of this off season i want to try and get a few more in before the season starts um this was for the minnesota twins uh i'm not going to go in depth really on on much of anything from here aside from saying i have a trade of theirs that i am absolutely in love with and i saw the proposal and now i can't really stop thinking about how great of a fit it is <laughs> and that trade is twins getting carlos carrasco and luis guillorme from the twins or excuse me from the mets in exchange for brian medina the thinking there being that uh, the mets have reportedly been listening on offers on carrasco since uh, whether they sign correa or not they're over the limit and he's a bit uh, superfluous to their rotation so they can really save some cash there and especially if they do sign Correa Guillaume becomes expendable and just looking at what the twins already have at shortstop it's Kyle Farmer but <laughs> Farmer Guillaume would make a very interesting platoon I think they both hit the opposite side uh, opposite side pitching opposite handed pitching that's what I'm going for they both hit it very well and they're both pretty good defenders at shortstop I think that wouldn't be uh, the worst they could do there so just plug in that really quick. There will be a link to the full article in the show notes. Um, but I think that's all from me for this week. John, do you have anything else you want to close out with? Uh, no. Uh, just to reiterate that we're probably going to see more trades now that the free agent market is sort of winding down. I think if teams still have upgrades to make, 
they're going to turn to the trade market. I'm not sure if we're going to see any blockbusters. Still a lot of chatter and rumors about Brian Reynolds, but it seems like the Pirates so far are holding fast to their, you know, to their price. And we have his price at 64, I believe, after the market calibration. So would suggest that, you know, we're, you know, we're, we're kind of in line with the Pirates price tag. We'll see if what happens there. Um, but, you know, then again, you know, never say never. There's always at least a surprise here and there. So um, it'd be fun to watch. Yeah, the other spot to watch is the Marlins rotation. Seems like there's a lot of buzz now that most of the other uh, free agent starting pitchers have been off the board. Uh, but Pablo Lopez, Jesus Lazardo, Edward Cabrera, somebody somebody from that group, uh, Trevor Rogers even, um, those guys are all candidates to be traded by the Marlins. And it seems like at the very least teams are checking in, Red Sox being one of them. Uh, there mm -hmm. was a bit of a framework that was uh, reported. Uh, we didn't, we don't have time to really get into that here, but uh, if nothing has happened by then, perhaps we can discuss that further next episode. All right. Uh, this was a fun one. That'll do it for this week. Thank you all so much for listening. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to shoot us an email at baseballtradevalues at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at baseballvalues. Also, be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. We're back in a couple weeks to break down more news and updates. So until then, stay safe and enjoy this off season. Thanks, John. Thanks, Josh.